Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Brothers and sisters, we're going to turn to the Word of God, and, uh, but as we, as we turn to the Word of God this morning... I want to say a few words about COVID. I was talking with Kyle and Rachel before the service who were telling me that in their work at the hospital, it's just full. They said they think that the reason the death is not as great is that there's better treatment and more knowledge about how to treat, but they said it is just packed. So I want to, I want to say a few things. Um, as Christians, we need to be people who are known for living in the fear of God and not in the fear of death. Now, we care for the body. We are to protect the ill. We are to visit the ill. We're to, you know, there's many things in the Bible that speak about how we are to value the body because it is united with Christ. Our, the Bible says our bodies are members of Christ. And so we honor the body and we treat it with dignity in life and in death. And we, we understand that every body Every single body is, is precious to God and that we are created in his image bodily. Not that our bodies are a mirror of God's body. He has no body. He's spirit. But that even in our body, we are undivided beings, body and soul. And that the body in, a, in some ways reflects the, the glory and power of God. And the body was made... Was made um, beautiful the body was elevated and and in a in the most powerful possible way by Jesus Christ taking on a body and that body was beautiful and precious and when Mary poured the perfume on Jesus before his death Jesus said what she has done will be told of for generations because she cared for my body and so the body is important but death comes to the body. And I grew up in a family where death and the body were, <laughs> the illnesses of the body and the reality of death were inescapable because of my brother's dying, because of my younger brother having a fatal disease, my three older brothers dying, my having a disease that my brother died of. And, and I, I came... I came to some understanding of death from that. But more importantly, in my understanding of death in the body is what God did in my life in my 20s when he gave me the gift that we are looking at together this morning. The gift of repentance. And that, that gift puts death in perspective. Because that gift undoes death removes the power of death, the sting of death. Death is a formidable foe. It is the hardest thing we go through. And if it's prolonged, it's agonizing in terms of what it, what it exacts from us, how, how much it takes from us. It is a, it's a great foe. The last enemy to be defeated is death. But we do not live in fear of physical death because there is a death beyond that is more important. I'm not saying not to be careful. I'm not saying that 
that precautions are not important. But I, from the bottom of my being, I urge you to remember that the cure for death is repentance, not social distancing. And that the death of deaths is the death of the soul. The second death that the Bible speaks of, that all men are destined for unless they are given the gift of repentance. And so the medicine that we need today in America, the medicine that we need as a church, the medicine that we need every day in our lives is the medicine of repentance, which our passage is about this morning. So I invite you to stand. Let's look together at Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30. This is the word of God. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning in the presence of those you love, in the presence of the angels, Father, who the Bible tells us rejoice in heaven when one soul on earth repents, in the presence of your Son, Father, who ever lives to intercede for us before you and who is speaking of us to you constantly in the throne room of heaven, in the presence, Father, of your word and of your people, We ask, Heavenly Father, that you will pour out your spirit on this gathering. I pray, Father, that as we are looking at your word, that my words and your word may not be mere words, but that they may come with power by the Holy Spirit, that they may bring conviction in our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our passage begins with with Matthew saying, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. It's obvious that we're coming to something that's in the middle of a narrative. It's not something that comes out of the blue. It's at a particular time, at this time. Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. These things are clearly things that are not referenced at this point, but that have already been referenced. What are the things that Jesus is speaking of? Well, he had just been denouncing the cities. We read this a couple weeks ago where most of his miracles were done because those cities did not repent. So he had said, what are you, Chorazin? Remember there was this triangle up in the north of the Sea of Galilee. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. says, what are you, Chorazin, what are you, Bethsaida? For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago. In sackcloth and ashes, deeply. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, his home, the city he lived in, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, 
it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. And then, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. So Jesus praises God that these things, these truths about repentance were not revealed to the wise and the intelligent, but at God's discretion were revealed to those who are infants. Not given to the wise and the intelligent, not revealed to those who have cause for pride, but revealed to infants. Jesus says, I praise you that you did this, Father. I praise you that you didn't give it to the cool people, that you didn't give it to the beautiful people, that you didn't make it something that that is taught in universities and apprehended by those who are the smartest and who get the best scores on tests and that kind of thing. I praise you, Father, that you didn't give it to the wealthy. I praise you that you didn't give it to those people, but that you gave it to infants. It's interesting. You don't think of infants as being the opposite of wealth or intelligence or all these things. He's not saying that you gave it to the poor or the stupid, is he? He could have said these things. You gave it to the unintelligent. You gave it to those who are poor. And he does care for the poor. And it's very clear that he has a special special regard for the poor and care for them. But at this point, he says you gave it to infants. You gave it to those who are tabula rasas, blank slates, those who have not formed prejudices, those who have not become wise, those who may be very smart one day, but who are at this point not down that path in a way that makes them have this self-regard as though they're wise. Now, we need to understand that the message of repentance is in fact great news. Jesus came preaching repentance He followed John the Baptist who preached repentance. He sent his disciples to preach repentance. Repentance was the good news. He describes it as the good news when he sends his disciples. The gospel is repent. You may say, well, I thought the gospel was believe in Jesus. If we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and confess with our mouths that he's Lord, then we have eternal life, don't we? And that's true. Repentance and belief go together. They are two sides of the same coin. You never have true repentance without true belief, all right? Because belief must drive repentance. You never have true belief without real repentance, because real repentance is the way that belief comes into flower in our lives. And so the Bible often speaks about repent. It often says believe. And at times it even says repent and believe. But these two things are the gospel. Turn away, turn toward. Leave behind, run for. They're the same thing. It's the same action. It's looking at the past. It's looking at the future. And the reason that repentance is an incredible and glorious thing in the life of the Christian and the life of anyone who's granted it by God is that repentance opened the doors of heaven. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent because heaven is right here. And through repentance, you open the door to the kingdom of God. Through repentance, you walk through that door. Through repentance, you receive the inheritance of a son of God. And so repentance is the glory of the Christian life. To repent 
is the great gift, and it's an ongoing gift. Martin Luther, in his day, spoke about the, the tragic views of the church that he had been a part of. And in the first of the 95 theses that you remember he put on the door of the church in Wittenberg, the 95 theses that kicked off the Reformation, the very first of them was, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be repentance. He willed the entire life. So it's not a one-day thing. It's not a one-week or a one-month or even a one-year thing. It is a daily act of belief. It is the daily challenge of our lives. And as we renew our repentance, and the reason that Luther made this number one is that the Roman Catholic Church taught that repentance was a one-time thing, largely through baptism, but occasionally augmented by good deeds like buying indulgences or going to the mass and that you you basically had to do it once and you were set free so martin luther is saying no no repentance is daily when our lord and master jesus christ said repent and he understood that jesus came saying repent when he said repent he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance so repentance is not a one-day thing it is the chronic activity of the Christian. And through repentance, we receive the glory of eternity. It is a joy to repent. Of course, it's not a joy to repent, is it? And some of us don't repent. Honestly, there are some here for whom repentance has, has not been a daily thing or even a monthly thing. Probably some here who have never truly repented. Never repented beyond the kind of repentance that is simply a result of consequences, looking and saying, ah, oh, that didn't work. But this repentance that Jesus is defining here is understanding something about our character and his character. It's not about one thing that didn't work. It's about us and God. It begins in a proper view of us, and it, it marches forward towards a proper view of God, and that's the glory of it. It is good news. So why is it not perceived as good news? I don't think it's any question that it's not perceived as good news. When was the last time you heard someone speak in a sermon outside of these last few weeks here and say, repent? I mean, this was the message of John the Baptist. It was the message of Jesus. It was what he came preaching. When he began his ministry, it says he began preaching repentance in the Judean wilderness. It was the message of, of Peter. On the day of Pentecost, who said, repent, repent. It was the message of Paul on Mars Hill to the people of Athens saying, God has appointed the, his son. And the times of ignorance are past. It is now incumbent on all men to repent. Repent of your ignorance. So repentance is a chronic teaching in the Bible. A chronic message of, the, of those who are preaching in the Bible. But it is simply not declared today. When you think of someone calling on people to repent, you think of the guys who come to the university towns and stand in the middle of the intersections and shout out, repent. And you look down on them. If you've been in a university recently that has had one of those street preachers come, you know that they come and they say, repent. And everyone laughs and says, we're beyond repentance. I think for many of us, we say, we're living in a time of grace. We don't need to be reminded of our sin. We have grace. We have the goodness of God in Jesus Christ there's no place in our life for repentance. That was a one-time thing, and we've gone right back to the enemy. 
the beliefs that Luther opposed, that repentance is a one-time thing and not a daily, minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour act of the Christian life. So why do we not repent? Well, I think that for many of us, we don't like to think that we're infants. God did not reveal these things to the wise and the intelligent. Now, let me just ask a question that may seem to you unfair. But in your self-description, in your, in your thinking of yourself, the conception of you that drives you, are you wise? Are you intelligent? Or are you an infant? No, which is it? We could add to the, uh, to the adjectives. We could say, are you wise? Are you intelligent? Are you cool? You think it would be fair to add cool to that list? Are you beautiful? Are you popular? Don't you think these would fit in with if Jesus were to expand the number of adjectives, wise and intelligent? Because out of wisdom and intelligence comes these other lesser qualities, but they are products, we think, of our wisdom and our, our social sense, our intelligence, our ability to handle ourselves in this world. So which are you? Wise, intelligent, or a fool for Christ, an infant? The wise and the intelligent see no need for repentance because that's saying that I'm not what I think I am, that I'm less than I want to believe myself to be, that I am not the be-all and the end-all. And of course, we are the be-all and the end-all, aren't we? I mean, we just think this way of ourselves. And I, it's in you, it's in me, it's in your children, it's everywhere. This is why Jesus says, Lord of heaven, I thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Now, let me make a, a point about this. God has not said that the wise and the intelligent are not able to perceive these things, that they have some inability, or that infants have an ability to grasp these things, right? Because there's nothing inherent in the wise and the intelligent that keeps them from seeing it, nor is there anything inherent in the infants that makes them able to see it. What he says is, God, I praise you that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent. And revealed them to infants. And so God has chosen to keep these things from those who are cool and bright and beautiful. But he has revealed it. He has made it open and displayed it to those who are infants. So, again, which are you? And isn't the enemy of your enjoying the kingdom of heaven... The thing that ruins every day of your life, your pride. We are proud. We like to think great things of ourselves. And nowhere is it more clear when it comes to repentance. So we don't repent because we're proud. Now, there is something about what Jesus says here that will to some people also be an argument against repentance. Or a motivation not to repent. And we'll say, look, 
It's not fair. I don't think it's fair that God would keep this from me. I should be able to get it on my own. And I don't like the idea of God giving it to certain people and not to others, hiding it from others. I don't, I don't like that. I don't think that's fair. And I don't want to be part of this process which is based in unfairness because God is not allowed to make choices. I want to read to you something that my brother quoted this week in a funeral that I attended. It's from Blaise Pascal, the famous 1600s, early 1700s, can't remember, the famous mathematician and philosopher and great Christian man. Blaise Pascal said, For it is beyond doubt that there is nothing which more shocks our reason than to say that the sin of the first man, that is Adam, has rendered guilty those who, being so removed from this source, from Adam, seem incapable of participation in it. This transmission does not only seem to us impossible, it seems also very unjust. For what is more contrary to the rules of our miserable justice, and there he's saying our justice is depraved, than to damn eternally an infant incapable of will for a sin wherein he seems to have so little a share that it was committed 6,000 years before he was in existence. Certainly nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine, and yet, without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. The knot of our condition takes its twists and turns in this abyss so that man is more inconceivable without this mystery than this mystery is inconceivable to man. Pascal says it is unfair to think that in Adam's fall we died all, as the New England primer used to say. To think that Adam did something that implicates us in it, that we are punished for what our father did. The Bible is clear. There is no escaping the unfairness. If you want to judge it that way, remember, he says our miserable justice and its miserable rules. If you want to sit in judgment on God and say that's unfair, you can do so. But that accusation against God will be an accusation that comes back against you because who are you, O oh man, to speak to God and to judge God? This is what Pascal says. We can't understand anything until we understand this fundamental truth that we are born in sin, that we live in sin, that sin is the very air we breathe, that we are sinners. We also, by our pride, by our sense of fairness, and also by our sense that of what is strong and what is weak, are inclined against repentance. I talk to people, and I say to them at times, repent, turn against your sin. And I'm telling you, Nine times out of ten when I say to someone who's in a pickle, someone who's really in a mess, when I say repent, they respond with something that may not be these exact words but are this exact idea. They say it's not that simple. It's not that simple. It's not that simple, David. You don't understand. You don't get 
So I have people talk to me. <laughs> and they speak to me about their marriages. And how, how unhappy they are. And the sins that are committed on both sides of that equation. And I say, well, <laughs> why don't you begin the day by praying together and repenting? And they go, all right, I'll try it. And then they come back usually a couple weeks later and they say, well, it didn't really work. We did it for a while. And you know why it didn't work? It's because they were repenting for their partner's sin. They weren't really repenting for their own sin. They were doing it as a ploy. Maybe I can force my partner to see they're wrong if I admit certain things I've done that are wrong. And that never works because repentance is always for our own sin. So I talk to couples and they say, that didn't work, David. I think I'm going to go to a counselor. I get calls from people and they say to me, David, I have a, a loved one who's stuck in the throes of an addiction. Is there a group I can send them to? And of course, the addiction can be alcohol, it can be drugs, it can be any one of 10,000 things. It can be an addiction to anger. Okay, that's not usually what I get calls about. It's usually drugs, alcohol. But whatever the addiction is, whatever the sin is that's gripping, um, the, the story is the same. It could be pornography. Is there a group? Is there a therapeutic method? Do you know of a counselor who can help? I'm not opposed to Christian counselors. I'm not at all. I think they can do many wonderful things. But what they can't do is change the heart of a man. They can't. They are incapable of changing your heart. And so you can go to AA, and you can go to the counselor, and you can go through all the processes, but unless something happens that's beyond the power of that group or that counselor in your heart that makes you new, you will eventually be back where you began. And it'll be the same process over and over again. So be, I want to be very clear. I'm not speaking ill of counseling, and I'm not speaking ill of AA or anything like that. But sin is deeper than a bad back. And you go to therapy for a bad back, and you take treatment, and it improves it for a time, but you know you've got the bad back, and probably nothing's going to totally fix it. Even surgery is not going to totally fix it, but you go through therapy, so it's bearable. Sin is not that way. And the reason it's not that way is that if there is sin left in you, okay, sin that you haven't gone to God in repentance for, sin that has not known the power of God, and I'm not saying that you're going to defeat every sin, but if you are not repenting of these sins, if you are not going to God and seeking his power, then that sin is going to remain and it is going to be told against you on the day of judgment. Because you did not seek God in it. You sought to do it yourself. 
you're wise, you're intelligent, you're cool and beautiful, and you didn't turn to Jesus in repentance. And so repentance is the gift of God. It's an incredible gift. It's not something that's onerous. It's not something that is embarrassing. It is the strongest and most joyous act of our lives. And you know how often the Bible speaks about repentance as being a gift? Frequently. On the day following Pentecost when the disciples were put in jail and, and told not to speak any further about Jesus, they're called before the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body, and told not to speak about Jesus. Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit. He is the one, Jesus, is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel. God exalted Jesus so that he could grant to his people repentance. In Acts 11, Peter's recalling what happened when he went to speak to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house. He's telling the disciples back in Jerusalem who are concerned that he was, he was with a Gentile. So Peter says, and as I began to speak to them, to these Gentiles who summoned me, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, when the other disciples heard this, they quieted down and they glorified God. Now, what did they hear? They heard that God poured out his Holy Spirit. The Gentiles responded. They glorified God and said, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. God gives repentance. God gives it as a gift. It's not yours to claim as a right. It is a gift from God. Paul writes in Romans, Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? It is part of his kindness. Peter writes, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Have you tasted repentance? Jesus, at the end of this, is speaking now to all the people, and he's speaking about the glory of repentance when he says, come to me. How do we come? We come by repentance. How do we come? Through recognizing our need. How do we come? Through the gift of our eyes being opened so that we see ourselves as we truly are and we see Jesus as the answer to that need. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Luther says something that we need to remember as we hear Jesus say, take my yoke upon you. Luther wrote in the bondage of the will, man is like a horse. Does God leap into the saddle? The horse is obedient and accommodates itself to every movement of the rider and goes wherever he wills it. Does God throw down the reins, get off the horse? Then Satan leaps upon the back of the animal, which bends, goes, and submits to the spurs and the will of its new rider. You and I were horses. And we're being ridden. And the question is, do we like to be ridden by Satan? Has Satan treated you well? Has he filled your life with good things? Has he fed you and cleaned you and given you soft bedding and made your life a life of happiness and joy with children who love you, with fruitfulness in every area of your life? Or has he done as Satan typically does when he rides a human being, beaten you, forced you into places where you're uncomfortable, caused you to be in pain, caused your children to be children of destruction rather than of life, caused you to see the horrors of this world and beat you unmercifully every step of the way. This is Satan, isn't it? So when Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. Perhaps some of you are like I am. You approach this verse with a background of hearing sermons on it in your past, and you have a, a preconceived notion about what this looks like. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. I don't know how many sermons I've heard preached where the pastor said, you know, Jesus is like the gentle old oxen. This strong silent gentle oxen and you put the young oxen in the yoke with the older oxen so that the older oxen can show you the young one how it's done help him with the burden or her with the burden make it easy well that's garbage it's just it's such a <laughs> a misinterpretation of this passage it's not true not at all Why is it not true? Well, in the day that Jesus lived, most people didn't have a double yoke of oxen. You were lucky if you had one, not a team. The most common form of yoke was a single yoke, all right? And certainly the poor people Jesus is dealing with are not the ones who have a team of 10 oxen or even two. But second, and all the more obviously, who does the yoke belong to? The oxen? Or the farmer. It's obvious that the yoke belongs to the farmer. The one who owns the ox. Jesus is speaking here as a master. And he's saying, leave that terrible master that you've loved. Leave him. Get out of his bondage. And come over and be my slave. Get in my, my yoke. Take my burden on you because I'm a great master. Jesus is a great master. 
He who died for you will live with you. He will bring you to his side in glory. Throughout his speaking, he very clearly says that you need to become a slave to him. That you need to enter into slavery to the Father. That you need to take on a yoke. He says, if I then, the Lord and teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. I don't speak of all of you. I know the ones I've chosen. Jesus says, you're a slave, and I'm the master. But what a master. Jesus says a little later in John than what I just read, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. If you start your life with Christ as a slave through repentance you will end up seated on a throne because he will call you friend and his father will love you and his father will make known his ways to you and his father will give you whatever you ask in his name. Repentance, it's a lost art. It's a despised art. It's kind of like the etch-a-sketch of Christian art. Yeah, you do it when you're little and young and don't know much. But you don't continue in it. We have to change. We must understand that all good things come through repentance. Repentance opens the doors of heaven. Repent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the call to repentance that we find in it. We know that we are proud. We know that we think we're wise. We know that we regard ourselves as intelligent and cool and beautiful, and we strive after these ways of being regarded, Father. We, we want to be these things. But give us a greater desire for Jesus Christ, our glorious Savior, who's called us to get into his yoke, and to embrace him as the one who rides us, Father. Please give us repentance, we pray. Give our nation repentance. Give this church repentance. Give our children repentance. And give us repentance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.